This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast. Believe it or not, it's the last show of the year. It is the end of 2021. I want to wish all of you a very, very happy new year. I hope you have a healthy and prosperous 2022. I hope you enjoyed Christmas time. And if you've been listening to the show, you know that in the last month, we have indulged in a little diversion from the pure economics, which we normally cover. And we have been talking about the old right. And we've been covering some of the leading figures and also some of the leading literature from that tradition, which very much informed Murray Rothbard and his own political views. And also, I like to think, informs the Mises Institute. So we have taken a look at Garrett Garrett, for example, spent some wonderful time with Jim Bovard talking about Mencken, spent some time with Tom Woods talking about Rothbard and especially Albert J. Nock. So that's been fun. And we're going to wrap up the sh- the, uh, the segment of the show on the old right and also wrap up the show for the year with our great friend, Paul Gottfried. I thought there was nobody better uh, f- to talk about the old right than him. Of course, most of you know Paul from appearances in the past on this show and from his status as a senior fellow at the Mises Institute. He is a retired professor of the humanities at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania. But perhaps most happily for all of us is he is editor-in-chief now of Chronicles Magazine and also Chronicles.com, which presents us with a non-ersatz form of conservatism, which I personally enjoy and uh, enjoy the physical print magazine very much. So all that said, Paul, great to talk to you. Great to see you. Well, thank you for having me on again. And I'm especially honored that I'm the last guest for the year. Uh, Yes. Well, years have this tendency of going by. But, you know, I was looking back over your uh, books on Amazon the other day, and we have most of them physically here at the Mises Institute, which Mm -hmm. is nice. But in a sense, I think you're very much a sociologist of the modern American conservative movement. So that said, um, I, I guess, why don't we start with... How would Paul Gottfried define the old right? How would I define the old right? Well, I mean, there's a there's a chronological definition. Uh, there's a, uh, uh, I suppose, a cosmological or philosophical definition. Um, and there's also one, I suppose, that is, is, is situational, right? Um, that uh, the, the old right are the people who stand for what was the conservative movement at one time but which has ceased, um, uh, ceased to represent the conservative movement in its present incarnation. Now, the problem, I suppose, with the old right is that uh, there's more than one old right. Um, and uh, something that Murray Rothbard used to remind me of, uh, there was sort of the libertarian anti-war right of the 1930s, right? And uh, then there's Buckley's version of the right in the mid, in the mid-19, created in the mid-1950s, and built around McCarthyism, um, the war against communism. And in that version of conservatism, um, all the other issues were of of ancillary or secondary importance. Uh, Then then you get, I suppose, an old right, which is the remnant of a right that no longer has any power and, in fact, has been blacklisted by what now calls itself the conservative movement. and these people, I suppose, can, can be divided into paleoconservatives and paleolibertarians, and there is considerable overlap. Um, and uh, they, they're the people uh, who continue to favor, you know, very uh, constitutional, limited government, generally decentralization. 
Um, they are extremely critical of all forms of social engineering. Um, and uh, they continue to adhere to traditional biblical moral values, family values. Um, and they have a very organic uh, understanding of community. Uh, so I suppose they, they, these people are really a remnant. Uh, uh, Knox spoke about a remnant, but we are sort of a remnant within a remnant. <laughs> and uh, we are, I suppose, what is left um, of, of, earlier, of earlier conservatisms, uh, which the present movement uh, has most emphatically rejected. But when we say old, we mean, let's say, the first half of the 20th century. And I think we also mean American, don't we? We don't mean old in any European sense. This is an American phenomenon. Right. No, no, I, I think, right. again, there is some overlap. Uh, I find that, uh, you know, some people on the old right in the United States feel an affinity for European conservatives and counter-revolutionaries. Uh, however, we are we are speaking about an American context. Um, and I think what is understood as conservatism it, it traditionally understood it's conservatism in the United States does differ from European understandings of conservatism. One thing I thought was interesting is that the somewhere around 1950 is a point, an inflection point identified by you in mm-hmm. your own writings, identified by Buckley and uh, Frank Chodorov, who started ISI you know, in the early 1950s, but also Gore Vidal, of all people, mm-hmm. who's a fan of the old republic, as he terms it, identifies right around 1950 with Truman and his loyalty oath as all this was the beginning of the security state as opposed to the old republic. So it's interesting that um, we can identify this neat cleavage in time as maybe the old right versus what I consider a very dreadful uh, modern right. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. Although I, th- I think Gore Vidal probably missed all of the uh, the antecedents, you know, of the security state uh, as it developed under Truman um, and and under Eisenhower, because the uh, the House on American Activities Committee was formed in the 1930s and went after people suspected of a fascist sympathy. In many cases, they were Christian pacifists, um, and. Uh, uh, World War One, I, I think, uh, America's entry into World War One saw an absolute destruction of civil liberties um, in the United States, and you know the right to descend from what was really a policy imposed by the central government on us, uh, and an intrusion into a war that we would have done well to stay out of. Um, I, I suppose in the Civil War, again, you can see sort of a crisis of the old republic because of the powers that were assumed by the Republican government under, under Lincoln. Uh, but, I, but I would say that, uh, that Gore Vidal is right, that since you know, the, the creation of the security state um, in the middle of the 20th century, things have become progressively worse um, for those who value personal liberty and those who value traditional community. Did you ever have a chance to meet him? Uh, I never met him. Um, I, I, ha- I have to admit that uh, when he was uh, fighting with Buckley on television during uh, a presidential um, uh, uh, nomination convention, um, I took Buckley's side. But then when I went back and looked at it again, <laughs> I took Vidal's side. Um, I thought that Buckley was picking on him unnecessarily. Uh, but I, I never met the man. I have read some of his novels and liked them a great deal. Well, when we think about the urban-rural divide in the United States. I wonder if that is a bit of a proxy for the more modern conservatism and the old right. In other words, 
Uh, Garrett Garrett talks about in his essay, The Revolution Was, that farmers used to be these really independent, self-employed, self-sufficient people who were effectively bought off by farm subsidies. Mm -hmm. uh, is the old right tied at all to land or to agrarianism? Well, I mean, there are elements within the old right that continue to value. If you read Chronicles magazine, we, uh, you know, we have sketches uh, uh, of great figures of the right. Many of them are Southern agrarians. Uh, and many of our readers like the Southern agrarians. They don't live in the South anymore. <laughs> and they're mostly Midwesterners. Um, but the uh, uh, agrarianism does resonate well with many of our readers. Um, uh so, you know, I mean, if, if, if we publish an article, you know, praising a uh, Southern agrarian, um, it's pretty much, it's not controversial at all. Um, there, there, there is a fit between our readers' worldview and, you know, what the agrarians are saying. So as we move past World War II, get into the 1950s, uh, the, the Cold War comes along and conservatives sees this as their new... Uh, reason for being. Um, what can you tell us from your perspective about ISI? I mean, Frank Chodorov is obviously a hero in, in many senses, but a young Bill Buckley was involved in creating that. What What is it about that period that, uh, apart from the rise of the Soviet Union, I suppose, that caused this shift? Well, you know, I, I, th I think someone like Chodorov was he's basically a libertarian. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think when he founded ISI, he was thinking it would work uh, to promote his libertarian ideals, um, that lasts only for a very, very short period of time. Um, and then ISI sort of becomes recognizably part of the Buckley movement. Uh, but with, with, with sort of a, uh, uh, a sort of a kind of Catholic uh, flavor uh, that it develops under, under Victor, Victor Milioni, who takes it over, um, it, it, it always has a broader cultural focus than what you find in a national review, but it sort of goes in the same direction. Um, I, I, think the, I think the emphasis on Cold War anti-communism and then on having all these people who are uh, uh, Cold War strategists writing for ISI for many years, people like Frank Traeger, I remember, wrote for them, who was sort of a Cold War liberal. There were, there were many others. Um, uh, Stephen Pustiny, I, I, th I think what, what, what happens is it sort of gets sucked in to what becomes the Buckleyite movement. And uh, I, I am not, uh, you know, I'm not really hostile to Buckley uh, because I think he was a very, he was a brilliant polemicist. And I remember as a young man admiring him a great deal. Uh, but I, I think anti-communism was the undoing of that, uh, of that phase of American conservatism. Uh, they can never quite extricate themselves. It's interesting that the neoconservatives were brought in in the 1980s because although they were not on the right, um, they were good anti-communist, you know, and that became the acid test in the end, you know, who, who would fit in. Um, and as you know, I, I become absolutely livid when I hear uh, these woke supporters of transgendering and so forth being described as Marxist. You know, by by on Fox News or by Mark Levin or one of these other uh, conservative movement clowns, um, this has nothing to do with Marxism. This has nothing to do with communism. That this is an entirely this is a cultural social danger that we face. But they're they're so accustomed to the language of the Cold War, you know, and to the demonology of the Cold War, they simply can't get beyond that. 
Yeah, when we think of the Cold War, we don't much think of Ike, do we? I mean, we think of him as a pretty benign or benevolent figure. Maybe that's just a, a media whitewash. But what if Taft had somehow beaten Ike for the Republican nomination in 52? We might have a different country. Possibly. I don't know. Of course, if he had beaten him, he would have died the next year anyhow. We had cancer, yeah. right? So he would have been, by 1953, he would have been gone. And we would have been governed by whoever, you know, it was Taft's vice presidential candidate. Although Eisenhower does not look bad in retrospect. We've had, we had you know, much worse presidents since the 1950s. In fact, he stands out as one of the better ones, uh, as much as libertarians might object to him. Um, you know, ne- next, next to uh, Joe Biden and some of these other clowns, I mean, he's, uh, he seems to be a very impressive man. Uh, although, I mean, like you, I would have, I would have preferred Taft uh, had I been voting in the Republican primary in 1952. So, Paul, over the weekend, I spent some time going over your book, Conservatism in America, Making Sense of the American Right, Mm -hmm. which we'll link to. I'm going to recommend. It's published by Paul Grave. It's actually pretty short, and it's a great read of under 200 pages. And it's an excellent, I think, uh, explanation of this shift towards a new conservatism, which has dominated, especially since the 1980s and the neoconservatives came along. Um, But reading it, you know, I'm reminded of how many people were let in uh, the camel's nose under the tent with this anti-communist uh, movement. I mean, we have the, the, all, basically the who's who of National Review with a bunch of former commies. Mm-hmm. I mean, Frank Meyer, for example, who's one of the better ones. But the the whole movement uh, was really riddled with this. Why why is this? I mean, what's talk about the sociology of this shift from the old right to the new right? Yeah, I, I think there, I think there's several critical reasons why this occurs. One of them, I think, has to do with Buckley's uh, own view of who was socially acceptable. Uh, and he became enamored at a certain point, at a certain point of, uh, with uh, the Bedoritzes, the Crystals, uh, Abe Rosenthal, of the, uh, was then the, uh, uh, an editor at the, at the New York Times. Uh, so at least some of the shift was... Um, uh, the result of Buckley uh, as a social butterfly, sort of changing his his uh, his, his milieu or social circle. Um, but I, I do think the anti-communism leads into this, uh, that, you know, the conservative movement could compromise on all kinds of things, you know, whether it's uh, the deification of Martin Luther King, um, uh, government social programs, or whatever it is. But anti-communism was, you know, the... Uh, one might say the the core, the linchpin uh, of the Buckleyite worldview, and along came these neoconservatives uh, who had been on the left, you know, and sort of became very angry at the Soviet Union, and you know would write these Cold War anti-communist uh, tracks and so forth. So you know they they are let into they are let into the movement, but at the same time other people get thrown out who are anti-communist. But not, one might say, as the uh, uh, as their primary emphasis, but who hold generally much more conservative views than than the neoconservatives. And I, I think the uh, the shift or the change was irreversible. Like you know, I've argued that whatever is in the conservative movement now, you know, is the is the neoconservatives, uh, but probably worse. Um, it's not that the movement goes back to the old right or goes back to being what it was before the neoconservatives uh, come along. It it moves more in the direction 
uh, in which the neoconservatives were going. As the, neo, as, as the second generation of neoconservatives, the Bill Crystals and the John Pedorchs and all the other ones, uh, become socially much more leftist because the original neoconservatives were in fact, you know, cons- conservative on marriage, homosexuality, all these other things. Uh, even, even on civil rights, they were probably well to the right of where the conservative movement is right now. Um, but, you know, w- w- one, once, once the, the inertia has its effect, they keep moving, you know, the, the momentum goes in the same direction. Uh, and the movement never goes back. It simply becomes, you know, less of something that is recognizably on on the right. Uh, but but I, I I would agree with you. The 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 uh, the focus on anti communism um, is critical for the transformation that the conservative movement undergoes. What's remarkable? Going back and reading some of the things written by the senior Padorets, for example, um, written by William F. Buckley himself. You know, these sins are just washed away. But some of the far uh, less alarmist things written by Murray Rothbard or poor Ron Paul uh, make them persona non gratis. That that irritates me, needless to say. But this question of sociology is so important to me because I think, as you point out, Buckley was a skilled guy and a charming guy. And then people need to be paid. They need jobs. They might want a job in government or a think tank or a magazine. So, you know, you talk a lot about Russell Kirk. Uh, but one of the interesting tidbits you provide about him is that he had a growing family. I mean, at some part, the, at some point, uh, we all have bills and those checks from Heritage for speaking, for example. It, we can't uh, separate these things about the the people themselves from their ideas. It's part and parcel. No, I I, I absolutely agree with you. And you know, his his wife was a very practical woman and said, "Gee, we have all these girls and." He had no boys, just girls. And, you know, we have to pay for them. They got schools and so forth. Um, and uh, uh, Russell never liked the neoconservatives. He probably liked them even less than I do, if that's humanly possible. But, uh, you know, he was he, most of the time he was careful what he said about them because he did not want to lose. Well, I think he was getting like thirty thousand dollars a year from heritage. Mm. So he did not want to give that up. The, the, well, another point that I, I may have missed. Uh, in my discussion of, you know, the, the effect of this of this anti-communism on the conservative movement uh, is the um, uh, the excommunications, uh, the war against uh, dissenters within the movement. Uh, this did not begin with the neoconservatives, as I'm sure you know, Jeff, uh, Rothbard, uh, uh, Chodorov, all these other people were victims of this back in the 1950s because they didn't support Buckley's position on the Cold War. Uh, and and this, this, I think, reflected the influence of communism uh, on these anti-communists. You know, they behaved like uh, the leaders of the movement. Everyone is to be disciplined. Everybody is to move in the same direction. Mm. And the conservative movement becomes worse over the years. I mean, even after the even after the commies are gone, they become worse. Uh, and, you know, they're like, they're like sardines in a can by now. Um, they, if you listen to Fox News, they have the same talking points. Everybody repeats this. Uh, they, do, they do allow left-wing deviationism all the time, as long as you don't uh, jump ship. They do not allow any deviation to the right, because this sort of takes them out of, um, uh, out of conversation with their friends in the center left, with whom they, you know, whom they try to bring on, onto their onto Fox News and so forth, but uh, uh, maintaining a kind of iron discipline within the movement, not allowing dissent, particularly from the right, 
uh, or on certain foreign policy issues. Uh, this, this has characterized the conservative movement since the 1950s. Uh, uh, even though it has become worse over the years, I think that Gestalt was present uh, already when, when Buckley you know, created National Review. Well, we see this play out in feckless libertarian circles as well. In other words, mm -hmm. the left is portrayed as well-meaning but misguided. <laughs> right. Well, the, the right is portrayed as per se evil. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have that here as well. But if we look at the 1960s, at that point, the John Birch Society may be the closest thing to an inheritor of the mm -hmm. old right tradition. And then, of course, they come along with the original sin of opposing the Vietnam War. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I argue. The, the reason that they are uh, excommunicated has to do more with their opposition to the Vietnam War than uh, uh, indiscreet statements that were made by Robert Welsh. Also, some of the things for which they were attacked, like racism, anti-Semitism, was certainly not true of the national organization, though you could have found individuals who you know, expressed those prejudices. Uh, if you looked at the, uh, the editors of American Opinion, you had a Jew and a Black. <laughs> you know, so, um, but the... Uh, uh, the conservative movement proceeded against them the way they have, the way they later proceeded against the old right. They they wow. pulled out all the same slurs, uh, mm -hmm. all 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 the uh, the same defamations that become characteristic of their of their later campaigns against uh, against dissenters. So as the right makes its peace with big government at home, empire abroad, you know, not only are they not denouncing the the New Deal like the old right. Arguably, they're taking it a step further with Leo Strauss and Jaffa and, and smuggling in this equality concept as a foundation right. of conservatism. And that, I think, would have been absolutely unthinkable to someone like uh, uh, Mencken. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I agree. I agree. Uh, although, strangely enough, I think the Jaffaites are the, are the, the, uh, the, the furthest to the right of anyone permitted in the conservative movement now, uh, even though they, you know, they push this equality mantra, but uh, on, on practical political positions, on moral positions, they're definitely the right of where most of the conservative movement stands right now. Um, yeah, the, the, uh, the reconciliation with the Claremont School of West Coast Straussianism uh, takes place at National Review as early as the 1970s. Um, I think already by the 1970s, as I argue in a, uh, a review of, of an excellent biography of Jaffa, one done actually by one of his students, um, is, that, uh, uh, is, is that well before the neoconservative takeover, um, the uh, National Review and Buckley considered Jaffa to be the greatest conservative you know, uh, of their time, the greatest conservative thinker. So... Uh, the, 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 move, the movement in the direction of equality uh, begins earlier than some people uh, who are analyzing the conservative movements may understand. Well, today in the very recent right, the Trump right, it's interesting that the Jaffaites and the Claremontistas have, I think, maybe eclipsed the National Review types who are now seen maybe as a feat intellectuals who are not willing to roll up their sleeves and fight woke. You're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, National Review is, you know, somewhere uh, somewhere in the extreme left <laughs> of the conservative movement spectrum now, uh, whereas the uh, the Jaffaites, you know, will take on all the moral cultural issues. They have no, 
Um, I sometimes wonder how you can believe in their egalitarianism and yet be so conservative on, on you know, in current politics. Though, though, though every now and then, Victor Davis Hanson, I think, uh, uh, sort of lets down his guard as he did most recently, saying that California is like the Confederacy. Mm. It's full of racists. Mm. I mean, that's something he recently wrote. So, uh, you know, there, 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 there is this leftist side, you know, to the, uh, to the Claremont School, though fortunately we don't see it all that often, not even in Victor Davis Hanson. Um, but, the, you know, obviously they, they have not moved to the right of where the conservative movement used to be. Uh, they, they are, I would say, simply the, the, the ones who are least influenced by wokeism and the leftists, which seem to permeate National Review now. If, if you remember, it was uh, Rich Lowry uh, who was insisting that we pull down statues of Robert E. Lee, right? I mean, it's like one, one, of, one of the early supporters of that movement. Uh, it also suggested that this would not result in other statues being, you know, the, the South were traitors, so we'd pull down uh, Lee, maybe Jefferson Davis would have to go, but we could keep Jefferson, you know, or somebody somebody else until, you know, until the left decided to pull down Jefferson as well. Well, here Ike would disagree with Rich Lowry, mm -hmm. shall we say. Um, so before Rothbard died, and I know that you knew him, right? there, there was an attempt amongst uh, the John Randolph Society and others to come up with, uh, you know, um, with Pat Buchanan, uh, Chronicles Magazine, Tom Fleming at the time to form some sort of alliance perhaps with the more Mises Institute end of at that time what we would call libertarianism. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder, move forward to today, is there any kind of fusionism at all possible or reachable today? What would the legs of the stool look like today? Well, you know, if you look at Chronicles magazine, uh, which I'm, you know, the titular head, but given my age and given, given my distance from everybody else, you know, who's in Minneapolis, um, you know, my, my influence is sort of limited here. But the, um, uh, the, the, the reality is that, you know, the, uh, uh, the magazine has gone in a populist direction, but not a libertarian direction. Now, Rothbard thought the two were somehow uh, quite compatible, but uh, uh, I think some of, some of our younger writers have a very different view. I mean, they, uh, they think we're going to have to sort of swallow big government in order to hold on to the working class, uh, who are socially the most conservative group. Uh, there are others, of course, who write for Chronicles who, you know, have more libertarian views. Walter Block writes for us quite often, and he's an extreme libertarian. So we, we are open to libertarian ideas. I, I, I think we look very favorably on uh, the Mises or because they were, they were part of our, of our alliance system before, you know, it was rudely disturbed sometime in the 1990s. Um, and, you know, we, we are very much open to collaboration with the Mises Institute. Do you think Chronicles is the home today of the old right, whatever pulse it still has? Yeah, I think it is, more so than any other uh, publication. And I think the reason that we are blacklisted and we continue to be blacklisted by conservative movement publications and uh, people in organizing conferences, whether it's the Philadelphia Society or the, the National Conservative, uh, you know, uh, neocon front organization, you know, holding its annual meetings, we are never invited. We are never asked to 
and and you know I, I think the Mises Institute is treated the same way uh, because we are associated with what the conservative with those who are trying to restore the conservative movement when the neoconservatives came in you know and and took over in the 1980s and we fought against them um, and I think I think I think that fight is still still has to go on. Um, I don't th- I don't think there's been much of a change since then. It's just it's just that the uh, the conservative movement has defined itself in terms of, of of the neoconservatives and then continue to move further further to the left. Um, so, I, but you know, in, insofar as as there is an old right, I think Chronicles does represent it better than any other publication. Well, I think young people are going to need something, mm-hmm. right? They may not have the material abundance of their own baby boomer parents, which is an unsettling thought, but they're going to need something. And I, I, when I see even the post-Trump conservative movement and this sort of know-nothing anti-intellectualism, mm-hmm. the bad kind of populism in my view, in other mm-hmm. words, I, I, I'm anti-elites because we have the wrong elites, um, but it, you know, elite rule is inevitable. With yes. a nod to Michael Malice. I mean, right. that's just a fact in any society. We just have the wrong ones. We don't have natural elites, to use the Hoppian term. So when I think about young people, the question has become for a lot of them, maybe they don't know this consciously, is what replaces God in a secular mm-hmm. society? And we always thought, well, the progressives have come along and made the state a religion. Now, Paul, they've managed to make COVID a religion, which right. is pretty incredible. But, mm-hmm. you know, for young people who we are trying to reach, the remnant I would like to think that a, an outlet like Chronicles might find or might touch the best and brightest of them because we got to do something on the intellectual front. I absolutely agree with you. Um, I also agree with your statement that, you know, I'm not against elites. They just don't like these elites. <laughs> and many elites that are fine. <laughs> uh, these elites are pernicious. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I have to sort of swallow deep when I call myself a populist since I've been critical of democracy and equality for the last 80 years. So, you know, it's a uh, it, 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 in my old age, you know, I'm making quite a shift uh, for exp- expediently, um, right. you know, but uh, obviously the conservative movement was uh, or what there was. It used to be the old right was really was really sort of elitist. I remember Murray Rothbard used to like to think of himself as a populist. He didn't. He never really struck me as one. Um, but you know, he thought he thought the people would buy his uh, his sophist- intellectually sophisticated libertarian ideas. Um, you know, there's a fat chance of that happening. Um, but I, I do agree that that we have to be able to touch the young intellectually, philosophically. Um, and we need the means to do that. You know, we, we uh, uh, the Charlemagne Institute to which, to which we are, with which we are united, um, has not been able to hold conferences because of this, uh, this COVID hysteria. Um, but we, we hope to go back to that. Um, and the, uh, uh, I, I think it's, I think that one of the things we can do, uh, and I know you do this and I do this is try to, familiarize the young people on the right with the history of conservatism in America. You know, I, I, th- I think they have to be made aware that, you know, there was there used to be something other than Mark Levin uh, or Brett Baer or one of these other people on Fox News. <laughs> uh, we, we even have problems with some of our readers and subscribers if we don't agree with somebody on Fox News. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so... Uh, 
I, I think the quality of conservatism, the, the, the intellectual quality has degenerated uh, disastrously, you know, in the last 50 to 70. It's just gone all the way down. And uh, uh, we, we cannot assume that young people who are drawn to our side uh, will have studied Aristotle or Plato or Kant or uh, even Murray Rothbard, Ludwig <laughs> von Mises. Um, and you, usually their intellectual development comes over the internet, you know, and <clears throat> by way of an iPhone. So uh, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the intellectual tradition becomes weaker and weaker. But without that, everything becomes unmoored, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, if, if you take a young person today and they may be looking at the landscape in front of them and hopefully they're dubious about student loans – Mm -hmm. They may be questioning whether they're going to be able to buy just that modest tract home that their grandparents or parents were able to buy quite easily on one income. Mm -hmm. Uh, They may worry about the romantic prospects, Mm -hmm. marriage and children. All that may seem fuzzy at best. And so, Paul, when we talk about anti-elitism, I mean, I think this is the root. People are discontented. And and when you look at the last hundred years, really, certainly since Wilson. Right. I I, I I mean. this has always been an American problem. I mean, Tocqueville and others talk about this in the 1830s, that Americans are anti-intellectual. Um, mm-hmm. And this was something Mencken was always emphasizing. And I think it's true. <laughs> you know, the, um, uh, uh, something that does concern me a great deal is that uh, young people who say they're on the right know nothing about the history of the, of the American right. I mean, uh, most of them assume that Martin Luther King was a conservative Christian theologian and political thinker, uh, that all of our problems started about, you know, five, 10 years ago, uh, before that everything was going swimmingly well. Uh, they, they, they really have a very, very narrow uh, sense of time and what has happened o- over time. There's, they're ignorant of history, they're even ignorant of, of, of recent history. Um, and, you know, I sometimes try to fill that gap but it's such an enormous gap, you know, that uh, you don't even know where to begin. Well, I want to wrap this up with a couple of big picture questions. When you talk about conservatism in America as an, an invention, I mean, it seems to me that if conservatism has to be constructed, if it needs to be a movement, that then maybe it's not worth much. That's an artifice. I agree. No, no, I, I agree with you. I, I think that... Uh, what the old right does is not, you know, look, look at this, you know, try to reconstruct the artifice. It's really looking back at conservative traditions in the United States and how we can learn from them. Because they, I, I think the conservative movement, you know, in the 1950s really is an artifice, uh, although it draws upon, it still draws upon more authentic conservative sources than exist now. You know, I mean, Buckley did try to pull in Southern agrarians, some libertarians and so forth. Uh, you know, most of these people, of course, become expendable because his uh, uh, his his deepest his sort of paramount interest is anti-communism. But there still were other traditions. And you go back and you read National Review uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. There's some very serious thinkers writing for them. Uh, you don't have that anymore. Uh, in so-called conservative, and, and the conservative media are just total lightweights. Um, so I, I think you can still go back and find conservative roots, even in the 1950s. I think they just become weaker over time. 
Well, I'll leave you with this. I'm reminded of the situation uh, in declining church populations mm -hmm. across the United States where some of these happy, clappy Protestant denominations that have moved very, very far left wing and they have uh, drum kits and acoustic guitars and all that are, are hemorrhaging congregation, whereas the traditional Latin mass, for example, is reaching more young people than ever before. So I think when it comes to our message, we ought to have that same courage and not dilute things. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, but I, I, th I think that one of the, the one of the serious problems is that people who call themselves conservative are not at all conservative, nor have any sense of what conservatism is. Uh, uh, there's they're simply, you know, a part of the left that doesn't call itself leftist anymore. Um, and there's certain things we're not even allowed to criticize. You can't you're not allowed to criticize. Uh, the social political transformation of the United States in from the 1960s on, if you say anything critical about the civil rights movement, uh, the first and second phase of feminism, uh, there are all kinds of things that are no-nos. Uh, you even, you know, even if you take a critical stance on gay marriage, they're going to come after you. Um, so, I mean, there's very little that, that you're allowed. You cannot say that, you know, conservatism has to be compatible with gay marriage. It may it's, you know, soon become totally compatible with being with being transgendered. Um, they, they, they really don't hold the line in anything um, except uh, defense spending. That's very big, <laughs> you know, getting into war with China and Russia, you know, hopefully within the next few weeks um, and uh, going after Marxist or communist or socialist um, who mean anyone who disagrees with them on the left as a Marxist or a socialist. Although usually these people are far worse than Marxists and socialists. Well, Paul, maybe the silver lining in all this is that Conservatism Inc. as a jobs program <laughs> and a sinecure <laughs> for some very mediocre people is coming to an end. I want to encourage all of you to, to check out Paul Gottfried's writings at chronicles.com, to consider subscribing to the print magazine. His most recent book, which is actually available in Kindle format on Amazon's 20, fall of 2021 book, it's called Anti-Fascism, The Cause of a Crusade. In other words, it's about Antifa, and it plays on the title of his 2016 book, Fascism, The Career of a Concept. So I haven't gotten to that yet, Paul. I'm going to. Your book on fascism is phenomenal. I know David Gordon reviewed it, uh, and I really encourage our listeners to take the time to learn more about Paul Gottfried. So all that said, I want to thank you, Paul, for your time today. I want to thank all of our listeners for not only uh, enjoying this show, but being with us throughout the year. We're going to have some fantastic content and material coming in 2022. So have an excellent New Year's Eve weekend, and we'll see you all in 2022. Thank you. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.